we've talked about a number of things. Uh, going to talk about one more issue again as we think about uh, biblical counseling, not just theory, but how an understanding of process touches, touches down in real practical realities. And so we're going to talk about another one of those here this afternoon. Uh, as we uh, get ready, though, I do want to invite you uh, to the ACBC annual conference coming up in October. I think it's second, third, and fourth. But we've been, we're doing the pre-planning right now for the 2018 annual conference, so the dates get confused in my mind. But it's always the first Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of October. And uh, this year, uh, it's going to be in Jacksonville, Florida at First Baptist Church. Um, And so if you want to visit us in October, we'd love to have you. There'll be uh, thousands of people from uh, all over the world, 19 countries, probably maybe more. Uh, and it's a great, great time to, uh, it's kind of like a family reunion. If, if you've ever been to one, uh, it's, the, it's the one thing in the biblical counseling world um, that I know of where everybody's together. So I get to do things like this all through the year and I see people, but at the annual conferences when you get to just see everybody and everybody's all there together. And our theme this year is uh, biblical counseling in the Protestant Reformation, and we're looking at how the truths of the Protestant Reformation, this is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and we're looking how the truths of the Protestant Reformation uphold and undergird biblical counseling. Um, We're actually trying to make the point that if you are going to be a faithful Protestant, if you're going to be a faithful person existing in the tradition of the Protestant Reformation, uh, then you've got to be committed to biblical counseling, which is a fairly controversial claim to make uh, because there are plenty of people who would want to say, hey, we exist in the the Protestant tradition, but we don't agree with biblical counseling. And uh, we're going to talk about how that poses a problem. Uh, at the annual conference. But uh, we've got some great uh, general session speakers. Uh, Lig Duncan uh, will be there. Paige Patterson will be there. Jim Neuheiser will be there. Uh, I'm a general session speaker. A um, number of really great folks. And then tracks um, uh, for breakout sessions, uh, tracks on sexuality in the body, uh, a track, uh, a, a workshop track on... Oh my goodness, I can't remember them now. What is it? Somebody just shout that out. There's five different ones. And so uh, you've got an opportunity to focus on specializations in the tracks that you come. And it's a great time of fellowship. So I want to invite you to Jacksonville in October. Uh, If you can make it, it'll be a great time. But uh, as we finish up this conference, uh, we're coming to an end here on what do you do when you don't know what to do? And let me, uh, let me whine at the beginning of this one the way I've whined at the beginning of the others, about being stuck with the word counseling uh, and how that poses a problem because it just creates distance between the task of counseling and the people who should be doing it, which is all of us. And we've talked about how when we talk about counseling, we're really talking about change and we're really talking about pain And we're really talking about relationships. And this last issue where we're trying to get really practical 
it brings to mind, when we talk about counseling, we're talking about our own wisdom. We're talking about our own ability or lack of it to understand people and their problems. And we're really talking about the limitations of our own wisdom. We're talking about the limitations of our own understanding. In fact, if you ask me, what's the real reason people, more people, don't do the whole biblical counseling thing? I think it's this right here. Uh, I think there are far fewer people who disagree with the theory that the Bible is sufficient and authoritative for the problems we face. And I think there's far more people that just don't know what to do. You're talking about somebody who's thinking of committing suicide. You're talking about somebody who is uh, got a sexual addiction. You're talking about somebody who is um, overwhelmed with sorrow. And you ask somebody to help those people and they just don't know what to do. They just don't know what to say. And to try to figure out what to do, to try to figure out what to say, feels like a hassle. And we just don't want any part of it. And so this is an important issue for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is I suspect that most people who don't do biblical counseling don't do it because they don't know what to do with a problem they don't understand. And so we need to talk about it. What do you do when you don't know what to do? Let me begin by telling you a story. Uh, Several years ago, uh, I don't remember how long ago it was, but it was several years ago, and I was laying in bed with my wife on a Saturday morning, and you know, it's when you're parents of three and you kind of wake up and you realize I don't have to go to work today and no one's screaming and it's just quiet. And so I was just kind of laying there enjoying that and I could hear Lauren breathing on her side of the bed and uh, then I heard her kind of move and I rolled over to look at her and My wife, who's a very beautiful woman, did not look good. I could tell something was wrong by looking at her, and she croaked out, Honey, I don't feel good. And I touched her forehead, and she was burning hot. She was sick. So about that time that I'm just starting to feel really badly for her and wanting to help, I hear three sets of feet coming. Just a matter of moments before, I'd been so thankful that I didn't hear. And I'm looking at these, all of our kids have these big blue eyes. They look like searchlights. And they're looking at me, all of them, and they say, we're hungry. We want some breakfast. And I went from like that, feeling badly for my wife, to being horrified. What what am I going to do here? Uh, And so I I got out of bed, 
And I went downstairs and I opened up the pantry and I saw a cornucopia of food. There were bags of things and cans of things and boxes of things. There was more food than you could imagine. And as I looked in this pantry full of food, I realized that I had absolutely no idea how to transform what was in this pantry into what my wife places on the table. Here was the problem that I had. I had resources, (laughs) but no facility. Okay? I have all the resources to make all the food anybody could want, but I have no facility to take those resources and transform them into something edible, you see. This is the way it is with most Christians when it comes to counseling problems. We have, in the pages of the Word of God, truly infinite resources to help with the counseling problems that people face. What we lack is the facility to use these resources to actually help people. Here's the thing. I'm not trying to sound insulting. I'm not trying to hit anybody over the head. I'm just giving you a fact. And you need to put it in your head and remember it until the day you die. When people tell you that the Bible is not sufficient for counseling, they are saying less about the Bible and more about themselves. When people say... That's just not a book that really is sufficient for counseling. You just need to hear somebody who is absent facility. They're not absent resources. I'm not trying to be mean to anybody. I'm just telling you, we need to, we need to be honest when we're weak and not kick the Bible. It's not God's fault that we don't know what we're doing. Uh, it's our fault that we don't know what we're doing. And we ought to not devote whole schools of thought to, well, the Bible's not good enough for our problems. Good night. If that's true, what was Augustine supposed to do in the 300s when he was dealing with his difficulties? What was Charles Spurgeon supposed to do in the 1800s, just a decade or so, before Sigmund Freud would come along? And he's experiencing his dark nights of the soul, but he didn't have the benefit of secular psychology. What about Christians in sub-Saharan Africa and in South America? Most Christians in most parts of the world today that don't have the resources of secular therapy. Are they up a creek? Did God, a couple thousand years ago, inspire the Bible? And then he's been waiting uh, in heaven for 2,000 years for some really smart people in the West to come up with some resources that would really help people? That's not what happened. God gave us what we needed, and it's our fault when we don't pay attention to those resources. And it's our sin when we dismiss those resources and make it seem like God didn't give us something that he did. Most Christians live in the gap constantly between resources, the resources of Scripture, and the facility to actually help people. 
But here's the thing I really want to focus on in our time together uh, in this last session. I actually want to be relatively brief because I love, Q&A is one of my favorite things in the whole world. So I, I want to save as much time for that as possible. So I want to be relatively brief. But here, here's the point I want to focus on here. It, sooner or later, every Christian, no matter how skilled they are as a biblical counselor, will experience the gap between resources and facility. It's just the way it works. It doesn't matter how skilled you are. It doesn't matter how long you've been in the game. It doesn't matter how much training you've got or how many degrees you have. At a certain point, somebody's going to walk into your office or walk into your living room, and they're going to describe a problem to you, and you are not going to know what to do. It happens to me. It happens to Joe. It happens to, it happens to us all. And so what we need to do is figure out when that happens, what do we do? And I'm going to give you four guidelines relatively quickly to help you start taking steps when somebody places you in the gap between resources and facility. Here's the first thing. They sit down. They describe a problem to you. You feel overwhelmed. You don't know what to say. You don't know what to do. Here's the first thing. Slow down and be quick to hear. So I referenced James 1.19 a little earlier. We can unpack that a little bit now. Let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. When you are in the gap between resources and facility... You are in the gap where James 1.19 makes the most sense. If you don't yet understand what you're supposed to say, that's fine. You're supposed to be quick to hear. You're supposed to be slow to speak. And so the first thing you need to do is to have a lot more questions. You can say things like, tell me more about that. You can say things like, uh, you know, I don't know if I understand what you're saying. Could you explain that in a little more detail? One of, the, one of my favorite things to do with people when I'm trying to grasp what's going on in their life and I really want to know what's, what's behind what they're doing, what's driving what they're doing, <clears throat> is I'll say, okay, what I want you to do is you're talking about this, say, conflict with, um, with your husband. What I want you to do is I want you to slow down and I want you to take me frame by frame through this conflict. So he came in and said this cruel thing to you. What was the first thing you thought? Tell me that. And then she can explain that. Okay, and then did you do something? Did you say something? What was that? And she can explain that. And okay, once you said that, how did that make you feel? Feel better? You feel worse? You feel guilty? Once you're experiencing that, what did he do? Frame by frame. I need as much information as possible so that I can help you think through this and so that I can understand the issue. Slow down. Be quick to hear. One, one of the best examples of this in my ministry was, uh, uh, happened in, uh, in a counseling situation with a girl that I call Sarah uh, in the Counseling the Hard Cases book that I uh, edited with Stuart Scott. Uh, it's, it's a book of real case studies of people that we and other friends of ours from around the country, uh, these were people who had extreme 
problems, and we use the scriptures to understand their problems and chart a course towards change. And the story that I told in the book was about a girl named Sarah who'd been diagnosed with postpartum psychosis. And that sounds like this really complicated problem, and it's not an uncomplicated problem, but it's even scarier when you read the story and you find out uh, what was going on. Uh, Sarah uh, was a member in my church, and she was planning to kill her baby and herself. So I was, I don't know how old I was when she and her husband first walked into my office, but I was probably 24. So I'm this really, really young pastor, uh, and she says, I want to, my plan is to kill my baby and then kill myself. What do you do? I never heard that before. What are you supposed to do? I believe the Bible gives me resources, but I don't feel like i got a lot of facility here. Uh, when, you, when you read that chapter in the book, there's all sorts of things that become operative in helping Sarah. But one of the most amazing things about Sarah and her husband was it reveals the importance of asking questions to be able to understand what's really going on. When you hear, I want to kill my baby and myself, that sounds like the scary thing that I don't have any understanding about, so I'm going to run far away from it screaming. But really what happened is I just started asking questions. And as soon as I started asking questions and I started getting a lot more information, what I found out was one of the most important realities. There's a number, and you can read the chapter if you're interested. But, but one of the most important realities was that she had gotten no sleep. Her little baby was, as I recall, two weeks old or something like that. And uh, since she got home from the hospital, she hadn't gotten more than about an hour of sleep a night. And she was really losing her mind from no sleep. She was going crazy from no sleep. And uh, the first and most immediate thing that we did was there were other things going on. But I said, okay, meeting's over. You're going home. Uh, we are going to order you a pizza. You're going to, it'll be there in 30 minutes. You're going to eat some dinner and your husband is on duty. You cannot do anything other than lay in the bed for the next 12 hours. She went home. She ate like three pieces of pizza. She laid down and passed out and woke up after 12 hours of sleep. And she was in my office the next morning and she was a new woman. She didn't want to kill her baby anymore. She didn't want to die anymore. Uh, she, her body was shutting down, and she wasn't thinking clearly. Well, what do you do when you don't know what to do? You hear a big, scary story. There must be something horribly complicated happening, something I could never understand. Well, you can understand you need sleep, and she needed sleep. There were other things. I don't want to oversimplify it in this context, but I'm telling you, one of the big lessons was I just needed to not freak out, and I need to sit there and listen. And one of the, there were three or four really big things happening, but one of the most significant and the thing that, again, got the most immediate relief was she needed sleep. You can't live that way. And she got some sleep and it really helped. So slow down. Be quick to hear. Here's the second thing. Ask for help. Ask for help. This isn't complicated. Not rocket science. When you don't know what to do, ask for some help. Proverbs 11 
Verse 14 says, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there's safety. In Proverbs 15, verse 22, it says, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. People who come to us for help need counselors, and we who are giving the help need counselors as well. Uh, For my entire ministry, almost, uh, I have had people who've been in the game a lot longer uh, than I've been. Uh, I've got two guys uh, that when I'm not sure what to do, I call them. And uh, these guys have been between them, let's see, they've got 60 some odd years of experience in biblical counseling. Um, One is uh, Stuart Scott. He was in charge of the counseling ministry at Grace Community Church where John MacArthur is in Los Angeles. This guy has talked to everybody. Los Angeles, okay? He's talked to everybody about every problem you can have. And when... When I'm not sure what to do, I call Stuart Scott, I call David Pallison, and I say, hey, what do I do about this? We need counselors just as those we're helping need counselors. We also need counselors not just to help us understand what we don't know, but sometimes for confirmation. Here's another story. I'm counseling right now uh, a married couple, and I started counseling them a little over a year ago. Uh, we crossed a milestone a few months ago uh, in my ministry where I've now, this is now the, the couple that I've counseled longer than anybody else. Uh, it's been over a year. And they came to me over a year ago and they were describing conflict in their marriage. I told you, most of the, my counseling experience is with marriage counseling and is marriage counseling in the aftermath of adultery. That's what That's what I've spent most of my time doing in counseling. And when a couple comes to me and they have ongoing conflict, I'm just telling you, I automatically put this in the fairly garden variety category. Because in my world, when nobody's being abused and nobody's committed adultery, things just got a lot easier as far as marriage counseling is concerned. Those add adultery, add abuse, things are real complicated. So I'm listening to this couple who've, who've had seasons of conflict for the last couple of years, and I'm just kind of doing the mental calculation, and I'm thinking, this is going to be done in three months. Pretty typical, couples in conflict, two to three months is about uh, my average. So I'm thinking, by summertime, these people are going to be out the door. And I just told you we crossed the mile marker, or the year marker. And last summer... When we weren't making progress like I thought we were making, I'm going, what is going on here? And by last fall, I'm like, what is going on here? I've lost my touch. I can't do it anymore. My mojo's gone. What I used to, it was like a three-month thing, and now I can't see the end here. What's going on? And um, our counselor to women who works across the hall from me, I went to her and I said, Becca, i got to have your help. Uh, most of the time when I do counseling and marriage counseling, I have a woman in there, but for all kinds of reasons, it didn't work out with the schedule when I started with this couple. I was like, I got to add you to these counseling meetings because I've got to have, because I'm telling you, I, I just think I'm doing something wrong. This isn't working. It's been, we're coming up on the year mark. I think I'm doing something wrong. I need you to come in there and sit down and tell me what I'm messing up. 
And uh, she said, okay. And so I said, hey, to this couple, I said, look, I want to tell you, I think we're making progress. It's not as though we haven't made any progress, but this is much slower than I'm accustomed to. And I don't assume that it's not my fault. And so what I'm doing, I'm asking this female counselor to come sit in. This is a little unusual. I've, I've never really added a counselor midstream before, but I'm going to do it. I think it's going to be good for you. I think it's going to be good for me. So we're going to do it. And they said, fine. And um, she came in and she sat in for a few weeks and we're talking after everyone. And do you know what she said? She said, Heath, if you're doing something wrong, I don't know what it is. I think this couple is just moving very, very slow. Uh, the, the amount of space a couple could ordinarily cover in two or three months, it's just taken them 10, 11 months. And she said, you know, I'm looking over the notes. The things you're talking about are the kinds of things I'd be talking about if I were talking to her. Uh, the kinds of things you cover. She was a former student of mine. She's like, you're doing what you taught me to do. Uh, she said, I just think they're slow movers. And you know what? That was really confirming for me because I'm going, well, praise the Lord. I mean, it would have been a one kind of confirmation if she'd come in and said, oh my goodness, you left out this and you left out that. Uh, but it was really confirming to know just, hey, uh, this is just a slow moving couple. And praise the Lord. I think actually within the last couple of weeks, we've turned a corner, but more on that later. Um, we also need help. We also need advisors when um, even when the advice fails. So I won't go into a lot of detail about this because it's not it wouldn't be a good idea to talk about it. But several years ago I had a married couple come in and I was on track with a plan that I'd created as far as a strategy to complete their counseling. And this one meeting, I was ready to talk about this one other reality, and the woman starts to sob. I said amen after opening with prayer. She starts to sob. And she said, uh, I have to tell you this. I need help. And she said, I, I won't describe it in any, de- any detail here so you can relax if I say something that stresses you out. She described... Uh, a series of sexual practices that her husband was asking her to participate in. And just trust me when I say they were very deviant. I just, I don't have the heart in this context to describe the practices to you, but I'd never heard this before. We'd been meeting for a couple of weeks and all of a sudden she unloads this and he's sitting there kind of nervous like, and I said, is this true? And he said, well, yeah, it's true. And, uh, I, what, what she described to me, I mean, look, I, I'm a pastor. Uh, I deal with adulterous situations all the time. I'm just telling you, I had never heard this before. And to this day, I've never heard it again. This probably might have been 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, never, never heard it since. And I thought, oh my goodness. I did what I do. I told you. Picked up the phone, called Stuart Scott. Los Angeles experience. Surely he's talked to somebody. He said, oh my goodness. I've never heard of that before. I called David Pallison. He's been in the game over 30 years. I said, okay, here's what they said. He said, Heath, I have never heard of that in my entire life. Okay. Well, at least I'm not alone in the, uh, in the confusion. The guys who are older and wiser than I am are tapping out. So 
Now what we need to do is we need to move to the third thing. We've, uh, we've fallen through on the advice. And what we can do now is, number three, remember the way that problems work. Remember the way biblical problems work. And let me, my goodness, there's so much to say here. I said I wanted to be quick. The time's going. So let me, let me just make one very superficial comment about this and see what happens. James, 1, or James 3, verse 13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. That's a bomb going off in personal ministry of the word. Every vile practice. Where there is disorder and vile practice, every time there's something there. You see what it is? Where there's jealousy and selfish ambition. If you are looking at a disorder and a vile practice, you can back that up into jealousy and selfish ambition. That is to say, whenever you're talking to somebody who's got problems in their life, somebody somewhere was selfish. Now, this is, this is a big deal. So that sexual deviancy that I had never heard of before and have never heard of since, I'm telling you, it's a vile practice. There's a lot I don't understand about that. But one thing I understand is that it is a result of a sinful, self-exalting heart. It's this man wanting what he wants when he wants it. And so there might be a lot of things that I don't know what to say about that, but I at least know that we've got to get this man turning from his sinful, self-exalting heart and turning to loving his wife. Because by the time this woman has been doing this horrible sexual thing with him, at his insistence, for months and months, and she's so overwhelmed that she starts sobbing and busts out a confession with the biblical counselor, you, you are hurting your wife, man. And you got to turn from it. And it's as simple and as complicated as that. The sinful, self-exalting heart, this is another layer. We, we, there's other texts we could look at for this, but you just have to trust me as we're running out of time. The sinful, self-exalting heart manifests itself in about four different categories of sinful living. There's anger. You don't give me what I want, so I punish you with my wrath. There's anguish. I'm not getting what I want, and so I respond with pain and sorrow. There is anxiety. I'm not getting what I want, and I'm afraid of the consequences of that, and so I start to freak out. And then there is avoidance. I'm not getting what I want, and so I check out into this alternate world where uh, I don't have any problems. Avoidance is actually the biggest category. It's where porn goes and drunkenness goes and sexual, other sexual addictions go. I, I, I want to be in control. I want the things I want. And so I go to this shiny, happy place where my problems don't exist. It's a way to respond to trouble without the faith, hope, and love that are found in Jesus Christ. 
And so we can back even the confusing problems up into a sinful, self-exalting heart, and we can start tracing those out into their manifestations of anger, anguish, anxiety, and avoidance. And if we have some general understanding from Scripture about how to put off and put on with anger, how to put off and put on with regard to anguish, how to put off and put on with regard to anxiety, and how to put off and put on with regard to avoidance, then all we have to do is take that general level of instruction and apply it to the specifics of the problem that we don't quite understand. Now, there is two weeks of unpacking with that point. But the reality is people are people and problems are problems. And even though uh, sinners can be very ingenuitive, they can have a remarkable level of ingenuity uh, in their sin, it still means there's nothing new under the sun. And people are selfish, and in their selfishness they get angry, they get sad, they get worried, and they check out. And if we can understand that, it can help us with a lot of things. A lot more to say about that. Here's the fourth thing. What to do when you don't know what to do? Pray. Pray. Prayer, biblical counselors make a big deal about the sufficiency of Scripture. The Bible is sufficient for our problems. If there is any qualifier to that, it has to do with the issue of prayer. We don't believe, biblical counselors don't, that the Bible, just when I say the words over you, that it just washes over you and you change. We believe the Spirit has to do something with those words. And if the Spirit has to do it, then that means we need to pray. You don't change. Nobody you talk to will ever change because you say one smart thing. If we think that, then we're arrogant and we're not really biblical counselors. And so a person who's truly a biblical counselor is a person who's a praying counselor. In James chapter 1 Verses 5 to 8, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If you don't know what to do, ask the Lord for wisdom, and he'll give it to you. Just ask and don't doubt. Just believe that he will, and he'll do it. Listen, I'm telling you, I could fill up the afternoon with stories of me not knowing what to do, not knowing what to say, and I prayed these prayers. Lord, help me. Lord, give me wisdom. And he gave it. Because that's what he does. It's his gig. He answers these prayers. It's a guarantee right here. Just ask with faith and no doubting, and he'll give you wisdom. And then we also need to pray that God would change this person. Our words are always going to fall short. Our counsel will always come up shy. But look at Hebrews 13, verse 20. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. If you're going to do, this comes at the end of the book of Hebrews after a lot of commands. And he says, if you're going to do what the book of Hebrews asks you to do, you need to be equipped to do it. And guess who does it? Jesus Christ. So Jesus, would you change this person? Would you equip them with everything good that they would do your will? 
Would you show up and change them? I can't change them. I'm out. But you can change them. And so, God, would you equip them? Biblical counselors are praying counselors. What do you do when you don't know what to do? Well, quit talking for a little while and ask some questions. Ask somebody else for help. Remember how problems work. People are selfish, and that manifests itself in three or four different categories. And then pray. Ask the Lord for wisdom, and ask the Lord to do His work. And He will. All right. My goodness. I didn't leave much time for questions. And that was probably too quick anyway, so sorry about that. What do you want me to do? You want me to stand here? Yes. Okay. How many of you are just thankful that he didn't trip on this microphone? (laughs) Oh, boy. Every time we walk forward, I was praying James 1, 5. Lord, give him wisdom that that microphone is right there. All right, first question. You may not be surprised. Looks to me like it's written in the hand of a student. What happened with the college student that could not graduate? Yeah. Now we're going to see what kind of compassion and mercy and... Um, what happened with that guy? Yeah, so I'd be, I'd be tempted to ask what you think I did, but uh, we probably don't have time for that. Um, you know, uh, I was really torn. I was really torn on that one because this guy deserved an F and to have to repeat. But, uh, you know, I just kept thinking uh, about the golden rule and uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I just thought, you know, if I wanted somebody to cut me a break in a situation, he was irresponsible. But if I wanted somebody to uh, cut me a break, I would want to cut them. I should cut them a break. And so the issue is, okay, how do I do this? How do I treat him the way I'd like to be treated? But how do I also, in some ways, it's not fair to all the other people who did their work uh, turned it in on time and worked hard to get a grade, and now they're graduating. So how do I, how do, I do that without, uh, how do I uphold these two realities? So here's what I did. I said, okay, I, I, we talked for a little while, and he was admitting that he was wrong. He was admitting that he'd blown it and that he, had, he was focusing on this girl and not on um, what he was supposed to be focusing on, and this was really bad leadership for a man who wanted to be a husband and who had... Uh, designs on being a father. And so I said, okay, here's what I'll do. I will call the register and the registrar and officially assign you a D on one condition that between, I gave him a month to complete all of the assignments and the assignments were all due in a month and all of the assignments, I would start him at a D for each one of the assignments. So if it wasn't perfect, he was going to start losing points and get to an F pretty quick. But for a perfect assignment, he would get a D and lose points for every problem after that. Uh, so I'll give you a D right now so you could graduate. But understand that without perfect work over the next month, you could still fail the class and uh, have to do this all over again. But at least it would buy you some time so that you could... Uh, graduate and not have grandma cancel the party room and all that kind of thing. 
Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Dr. Lambert. I'm so grateful for you. I mean, he was flipping out. And then I actually found out that, uh, so I called the registrar, said, give him a D. So he walked. Uh, but at that point, because they'd already printed his uh, degree, I actually found out this was a learning experience for me, that uh, there's no mechanism in an institution of higher learning to retract a degree. So once they gave him the degree, that was it. So this is why, if any of you have walked for graduation, it's why you're, you don't get the degree. Because once they give it, you really can't take it back. There's, it's, it can even be illegal to take back a degree. So he got his degree, but he never knew that. He just... Uh, <laughs> Okay, hopefully he won't find out about that, but he turned his work in, and he did okay. So, Better about that, that the guy got his degree. That's, yeah. Okay, yeah. all right. Okay. Okay, and let's see if you can just address this in a sentence or two. What's the biggest threat to the biblical counseling movement? The biggest one. So I could mention two or three. Uh, but the biggest one, I would say, is probably the skill thing that I was talking about uh, either this morning or last night. That if we, I, think, I think the biblical counseling movement has the strongest arguments in terms of theory. So I, I don't, in fact, integrationists haven't even been responding to our arguments about the sufficiency of Scripture in the last 10 years or so. They don't even respond to it anymore. And I have friends who are integrationists, so I talk to them, and I say, well, how do you respond to this? And they're like, well, let us think about it. So there's really, there's a lot of weakness in terms of the theory on the integrationist side and a lot of strength uh, on the biblical counseling side. In fact, you just look at institutions of higher learning, the Christian institutions that are flipping, they're flipping in the direction of biblical counseling. So that's started happening here in the last several years. So I think we've, we've really won the intellectual war, but I think we've got a long way to go on uh, practice. I think we need to be sure we're doing it well. We can't just win debates about sufficiency of Scripture. We have to be able to bring the goods, and we have to bridge the gap between resources and facility, which is one of the reasons why I love leading an organization that's all about how do we get, how do we move from theory into actual counseling skill so that people are really helped. Because if someone comes and sits with you and they describe their problems, and you blow it. Well, it's not just that that individual counseling session didn't work. It's that you lost a potential convert to biblical counseling. And I'm just telling you, that's a big deal. I still hear. Uh, even just a few weeks ago, I was hearing about somebody who 35 years ago uh, went to a biblical counselor, and it didn't go well. And for 35 years, that was just biblical counseling. Just da 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 I mean... So the counseling skill thing, we, the risk is that we'll, we'll die of a self-inflicted wound. Okay. So positive and negative books. For, so um, what, uh, negatively speaking, what two books would you uh, tell people to avoid in, in biblical counseling? Oh. oh, my goodness. What two books would I... Think in the positive, what are two, they say three, but let's limit it, two, book, two biblical counseling books you would recommend. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, okay, so uh, two. Definitely the peace and joy principle. Yeah, that one's a. Uh, <laughs> oh, I thought that was one they should avoid. <laughs> Never mind, take that back. 
<laughs> and they'll know we are Christians. <laughs> um, hmm. So maybe let me try to punt on the first one. Okay. I actually, I am not the kind of person that thinks people should avoid almost any book. If a book is problematic, I would rather you read it and let's talk about what's problematic about it. So, so I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with the premise, what books should we avoid? I would say, in fact, if there's a really problematic book, that might be the kind of book we really want to read uh, so that we know with what care. the problems are. Yeah, with care. Yeah, yeah, of course. Not every, I mean, you know, people come into my office all the time and they're like, oh, I got to read some of these books. I'm like, well, don't read all of them, you know. Uh, because with limited, I mean, hey, you know, there's a couple of these books. Hey, put them on your toilet tank, and after you've done your devotions and read the Peace and Joy Principle, you know, if you've got a few minutes, then read read this one. Uh, but but not every book is worth everybody's time, and and there's some books that I have to read that it would be bad for other people to read because I just have to read them because I need to know what's going on. But I wouldn't tell anybody to avoid any book. I would just say there's some books that need to be read with. Caution. Yeah. Well, I would even say all books need to be read with caution. And the Acts 17, hey, let's listen carefully and be good Bereans. So I think you should read whatever you want, but just read with a book in one hand and the book, the Bible, in the other, and be sure they're they're adding up. As far as two books that are really worth commending in the biblical two books, I mean, my goodness, there's so many. Uh, you know, I do think that uh, the MacArthur book on counseling, uh, it's, a, it's a compilation volume. And I think if you're going to read one book about biblical counseling, that's a good candidate. Just because it's got a little bit of theory, it's got a little bit of practice, it's got a little bit of history in it. Um, it's got a little bit of engagement with other counseling approaches. So because of the diversity of topics that are included in it, uh, I would say I would I would say that would be one. There's so many, so, so many. So I'll just pick the next one that comes in my head. Okay, David Pallison's book, uh, Seeing with New Eyes, mm-hmm. is a really good primer for just how to think about biblical counseling. There's so many others for so many different things. Uh, uh, Rich Gann's book, Psychobabble, so good. Uh, and just his story of how he was, he, he was a psychiatrist trained in Harvard Medical School, and he was a Jew who didn't give a rip about the Bible or give a rip about Jesus. But he saw that uh, this, psychiat- this psychology is not helping anybody. These therapies that I learned at Harvard are making people worse. And he, was, he had this crisis. He went to Labrie and studied with Francis Schaeffer uh, and then went to Westminster and took biblical counseling. He's like, people need the Bible. Mm. And so he left his uh, psychiatric practice and started doing biblical counseling, and he's been doing it. He's, mm-hmm. I think he's 110 years old now. He's been, he's been doing biblical we, counseling. We've had since. him here. We've, okay, yeah. yeah he, he was here, what, Joe, about 10 years ago or so? Richard Gantz? Yeah. About something like that. Okay, the next couple, let's try to hit. They're, they're a little bit involved, but let's see. In ministering to suffering first, then sin, which is, I think, your first session this morning, how do psychotropic drugs play into relieving suffering? In relieving suffering that way, will we be interfering with the Holy Spirit trying to teach someone to bear up under the pressure of suffering to be more conformed to his image? Okay. Um, so that, that is an involved question. Let, let, me, um, let me take it in a couple of different parts. First of all, 
Um, one of the things that if you've been through the ACBC training, you should have learned is that it is not the job of a counselor by expertise or by uh, even licensure to engage in the practice of medicine. So as biblical counselors, we, don't, we, we are not allowed to put people on any kind of medication, and we should not try to get anybody off medication. So the medical doctors that do our training, we have, when we do medical training at ACBC, we have board-certified medical doctors and uh, ACBC-certified counselors. And uh, those guys, uh, if they were here, they would, they would stand up and they would say, I am a board-certified medical doctor. When I am doing counseling, I don't practice medicine. Uh, so when I'm talking to a counselee who's on psychoactive medication, I don't tell them to get off their medication because I'm not the doctor who put them on the medication. I'm not going to be the doctor who, put them, who takes them off. Um, uh, so, so the first thing we need to say is as biblical counselors, we don't practice medicine. I know when I have a counselee who's on psychoactive medication because I, I ask them on the intake form, and so I know because I want to know. Um, and, uh, but I have never, ever made that an issue in counseling mm-hmm. for all kinds of reasons. Now, counselees ask all the time, all the time. Counselees ask, should I come off this? What do you think? What do you think about that? Should I come off this? But I don't ever make it an issue in counseling. I'll try to uh, answer people's questions when they come up. But my default answer is, hey, you, need, you should go talk to your doctor. If you're having bad side effects from this, uh, you should go talk to your doctor. doesn't want you to have bad side effects. If you think this is not working, if you don't think you need this anymore, go back to your doctor and say, hey, you put me on this before I was in counseling, but now I'm in counseling. I'm dealing with these problems. I'd like to wean off this. And, and your doctor can help you do that. But I'm not the guy uh, by expertise... Um, or ethically. It'd be unethical for me to, to weigh in on that. Listen, if you tell people to come off their medication, they can become suicidal. I mean, you, you do not want to get involved in this. So we leave that to medical professionals. And even the medical professionals who are ACBC certified say, hey, I'm not the medical professional who did it, so I'm not the medical professional to help you get off of it. Um, so that's, that's a great big um, reality. Uh, that I just want to acknowledge first. The second thing I would say is even people who are on psychoactive medication, they still came for counseling, so clearly there's problems that still need to be worked out. Evidently, it's not working. That's right. So there, so something's coming up short, and so just deal with the problems. They're still going to need to bear up under suffering uh, they're, because they're, they're talking to you. And so do whatever's on the table to help them do that. Uh, and just leave the uh, the medical problems to somebody else. So it's, our job is to deal with the hearts of men and women. That's our calling. And we can do that if people are on psychoactive medication. Um, and if they asked us for help, even while they're on psychoactive medication, then that means that they need the help and we should offer it. What okay. do you think of that? I, I think you, you've done well. Okay. Um, treat it spiritually. Treat the issues that you can know to treat and... And see the Spirit of God do His work in that other area. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I will say, the, the uh, ACBC has been very clear on this issue. So uh, It's a complicated issue, so I'll point you to uh, a, few, um, a few resources. Number one, if you're interested more in what I think about it, I explain in a lot more detail in that theology book that you were talking about in the chapter on body and soul. Um, there, I deal with that. Uh, it's, it's in the chapter on biblical counseling and the doctrine of humanity. And there's a section on body and soul and how physical issues relate to spiritual issues. I unpack this in there. 
Um, there's also um, a little book I wrote that's available on Amazon called The Gospel and Mental Illness, where I talk about these things. Uh, and then ACBC has several official documents on this. There is, our, in our standards of doctrine and our statement on humanity, we weigh in on this. Um, in our statement on common grace, we weigh in on this. And then in our standards of conduct, where we talk about counseling practice, we weigh in on this as well. And so you can look at those two official statements. And then also in 2015, uh, I drafted with two medical doctors and uh, a few other people a statement that the board of ACBC approved as an official statement. It's called a statement from ACBC on mental illness, medicine, and counseling practice or something like that. And that's an official statement from ACBC that's available at biblicalcounseling.com. So for more, you can look at those things. Let's just do one more. Um, We'll we'll try to tackle this. Uh, Would you treat an alcoholic husband who professes to be a Christian in the same way as you treat the adulterous husband by saying you have to quit? And what will happen if you don't? i.e. church discipline, and then a counterpart to that. What needs to happen when, Christian, when a Christian controlled by alcohol is putting self and others in danger? Yeah, so... So two parts. Mm-hmm. So l- let me... Let me say this, because that bumps up against, you know, when I told that story, I mentioned I told it before, and I had some people upset. That, that question bumps, I don't hear that anybody here is upset. Though if you are, I'd be okay. Uh, maybe you are upset. Uh, so I hear that bumping up against that. So let me, let me address that this way. Um, the short answer to the first question is yes. A person who is enslaved to alcohol, I would say, you have to quit. Uh, in the same way that I would say that a person who is fornicating, I would say you have to quit. Um, the question is, though, after I say quit, what do I expect to happen? And what's the process from between you have to quit to we actually have confidence that they are actually gaining progress? And what goes in the middle there is Jesus. And so, in fact, the reason when I told that story in another context and everybody got upset, or not everybody, but two people got really upset, is because it sounds like I'm a legalist. It sounds like you're Bob Newhart, just quit it. Uh, but that's not the way it is. Uh, the reality is, the law, you, know, you know, the Bible teaches the law is good. The law is good. There's nothing wrong with the law. What's wrong is our hearts. Uh, if you, look, if you never get drunk... If you wait until you're married to have sex, if you, in your marriage, only have sex with your spouse, you know what? You're going to be happier than most people. That's because the law is good. The problem is when I have sex with anybody I want before I get married and then I have sex with anybody I want after I get married. Now your life's going to be a mess. The law is good. This is why the psalmist says, Lord, I love your law. I love your law. The law is good. The problem is our heart and we can't do it. Uh, when the law tells me, don't have sex till you're married, I, I, all of a sudden, that sounds like a great idea because I want what I'm not supposed to want. So what we need is a Savior to fix that. We need Jesus to bridge the gap between don't do it 
and now I'm not doing it. And that's what he comes to do. He comes to equip us, we read in Hebrews 13, with everything good to do his will. So we have to put the law out there or we won't know what the will is. We have to say, okay, God's will for your life is to not have sex with anybody but who you're married to and is to not be drunk. But for a guy who loves having sex with a woman he's not married to, he's going to feel frustrated by that. And for a man who loves getting drunk every night, he's going to feel frustrated by that. So what do we do? Well, Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to love him more. Call out to the Lord. Ask him to forgive you for wanting things that he hates. Ask him for power to do what he commands. And when you, when you ask Jesus in faith to do those things, guess what? He does it. Jesus does not turn away people who come to him in faith. And so, quit having sex with this woman. And quit right now. And quit being drunk. And quit right now. And about the time you feel frustrated that you can't pull that off, you're where you should be. And you need to call out to help for, from a redeemer. So it might, it might be an evidence that he's not a believer. It could be. Yep. It could be time tells. Yep. We see. We have yep. to wait and see. Uh, it, it, the only other thing I would add to that is with the drunk, because now we're talking about a physical dependence issue, um, I would never with a drunk, with a person. You know, people who are uh, detoxing from alcohol have a harder time detoxing than heroin addicts. Do you know this? Alcohol messes up your body. And so if, if I'm talking to a drunk, I would never, ever just say, quit, trust Jesus, and I'll see you next week. We need to get you in a residential facility where you can have medical care because you will have a medical problem if you're a drunk and you just stop. Just physical detox. Just, yeah, just yeah. physical detox. Yeah. So, so that's the one thing I would add. But, you know, nobody ever had a tremor because they couldn't fornicate. So yeah, uh, it's 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 uh, it might feel unpleasant, but you know the coroner never walked out of a medical exam and said, you know, he died from lack of fornication. You know, uh, so so those two things are are very different in that sense. <laughs> what a way to end the conference. <laughs> Let me me try one statement that will maybe make it better. But everybody needs Jesus, okay? Everybody needs Jesus. So there we go. (laughs) Lord has been so good to us today, hasn't he? And last night. And um, already we're looking for... Wait, before you go, let's just thank our brother. Hasn't he done a great job? We just appreciate that. My pleasure. Glad to be here.